Business in the Okanagan Matters. This is Law Talk with lawyers Clay Williams and Tanvir Gill from FH&P Lawyers, LLP. They talk business and take your questions at podcast at fhplawyers.com. Now, here's Clay Williams. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of FHP Lawyers Law Talks. I'm Clay Williams. I'm a partner here at FHP, and with me, as per usual, and on time today, Tanvir Gill. Woo-hoo. How are you? Good. How are you? I'm awesome, and uh, you know, I'm, why wouldn't I be awesome? I, I don't love your sweater today. <laughs> why? It reminds me of fall, and it's still warm out. Well, that's true. Yeah, it is. It's a kind it's of like a, a winter, fall colors. a winter grandpa sweater. Well, you know, I was, I was a little chill, so, you know, it's uh, you got to put a sweater on when you're my age, so uh, what, what do you do? So, hey, we got a great show today. The background of this show was that I've been having a lot of questions from clients of mine uh, concerned about, you know, behavior of their elderly parents or their children mm-hmm. who are, you know, maybe have suffering from some mental illness or some addiction issues. And what can we do about it? In the past, I've said, well, I, I don't know. Um, but uh, I've got a lawyer here who deals with those issues, and, and why don't you talk to him? And I had the opportunity of sitting in on one of those conversations recently, and it was, a, it was an interesting and really a heartbreaking conversation. So with that, I'd like to introduce uh, Colin Flanagan. Colin is a solicitor here who practices in the field of wills and estates and, and deals with these, these hard questions. Welcome, Colin. Well, thanks for having me, but a uh, heartbreaking conversation. That's a, it's a bit of a depressing intro for me on that, but uh, thank you. I, I do appreciate this sweater, though. Uh, old souls do think alike, so that is definitely <laughs> something I would wear as well. Well, you know, it's got patches on the on the elbows, and that's what... Just uh, so what you I know, like one time Colin dragged me to the hospital to be his second witness on a will, and somebody may or may not have died right in front of us. Oh, no. So now I refuse to answer his, I need a second witness emails. No. I'm not going anywhere with you. <laughs> you don't answer my emails anyway, so let's be honest. That, that's just besides the point. Wow, that, that is, that's, uh, that's a little bit much. Yeah. Were you a brand new lawyer at the time as well? No, this is, well, kind of. I mean, I, I feel like I still am brand new because I'm only in my no, third year, but this was last year, I think. Yeah, I think so. You'd been with us for only for a couple months. It was yeah. one of the first times I'd done any meetings with you, and I was like the first yeah. meeting I brought you along to, and it was uh, yeah. not the way I thought it was going to go. Shall yeah. I say? And then Colin got mad at me because when we left his client's room, I was like, "Good luck." <laughs> <laughs> He's like, why would you say that? And I was like, I don't know. Because you're, you're in hospice, I take it. There's, no, there's... he was just going in for like a kidney surgery or something. Well, it was a little more than a kidney surgery. <laughs> but it, the sentiment wasn't misplaced. It was, um, prognosis wasn't great. So Colin, um, you know, when we get these uh, these questions, and I guess the, the most common question that, that I get is, uh, you know, grandma or, or grandpa, uh, is is making uh, poor financial decisions. You know, is there something that we can do to assist with that? And you know, I I get this all the time. What what can we do? What what can people do when when we see uh, you know Grandpa going out and buying new cars and making decisions that just aren't logical? Well, there's the preferred option, and then there's the kind of backup option. Now, preferred option is that when people are doing their estate planning. It's a full estate planning. It's not just a will. It includes, you know, making sure all the pieces work together and are customized. Things like incapacity planning as well, too. Look at things like a power of attorney for legal and financial decision making, a representation agreement 
for healthcare decision making. And that's the ideal situation. You do that planning in advance, you appoint the people, you set up when the documents become active. So when grandma or grandpa or your friend or neighbor start having those problems, the plan's already in place and it's a smooth transition to get it kicked into gear. The problem is when you don't have that planning done in advance. That's when you start looking at the backup option, which is more of a last resort. And that's really looking at court applications. Now, I'm not, you know, I'll be honest, there, there is some gaps in the legislation when it comes to guardianship provisions for adults or vulnerable people. You know, when we're looking at the type of legislation and court applications we can make, they're designed for people that have lost capacity. So the really heartbreaking situations are the ones where it might be someone with mental health issues that might not fit into those categories and the options might be more narrow or fewer that we can actually look at. When we do look at the incapacity planning ones, we're usually looking under the Patient's Property Act. If anyone does any research on it, it's actually spelt committee, but it's pronounced committee. And that's looking at trying to have someone appointed in courts to be committee of the person, which is being able to make healthcare choices, and or committee of the estate. That's being able to make legal and financial decision making. Now, I'll be honest with you, this is not a fun process to go through. You know, what it requires is going to be getting two medical opinions, which best of times is difficult, but right now there's a doctor shortage and it's hard to get assessments done on people. And if you are going through a, you know, using a degenerative disease as an example, someone's going through, say, an Alzheimer's or dementia, they're going through a tough time already. You drag them through one of these assessments, it's tough on them, right? You're getting asked questions designed to confuse people and see if they can reason their way through them. That in itself can be a heartbreaking, heart-wrenching thing to see and needs to happen twice. You need to get two medical opinions and then these need to be filed with the courts along with some other affidavits about the financial circumstances of the person and it actually gets heard in open court and a declaration of someone being you know, ruled as being incapable of managing themselves and their affairs to be able to be appointed to take care of them. And it's, that's why it's really a last resort. It's expensive. It's time consuming and it's not private at all. Now, there is another option as well too, and that's you know a, a public option for committee of the estate, and that's the public guardian trustee can step in and can take care of vulnerable individuals and make financial decision making for them. But that's when the type of work when we're trying to help you know friends and family members. That's usually when we're looking at the private committee, you know, the person actually applying to courts itself. Okay, now I'm going to back you up here, okay? Yep. Uh, so you started with this estate planning and how important it is to have the estate planning documents. And I, I understand that. Does that cover off the situation? And just using Grandpa, say, as the example again, where Grandpa doesn't agree that he is having some issues making decisions. Because as I understood the estate planning documents, that's something that comes into effect when there is actual consent from the, the, the person, or it becomes very obvious that they can't deal with things and they're not going out and acting to regular people that might just meet them, uh, that uh, they could act quite normal. And I'm going to buy a new car, um, even though they might not say that they've lost their license or something like that. Uh, you know, does estate planning documents assist in that situation? It's a great question, and this comes to the point that estate planning documents are extremely customized, or at least they should be. Every document when it's being created is part of the bigger plan that's, you know, should suit everyone's particular needs and circumstances. And one of those things is when do these documents become active? So you're hitting the nail on the head that this is a key component of it. 
it's not just having these documents for when they're needed. It's defining and figuring out when is that point when they're needed. And you can go from multiple different ways. You can have documents that are, quote, springing documents, where they only come into effect when doctors have a declaration of incapacity. You know, and that might require medical opinion. Well, and that's the issue that my clients have asked me about time and again is, well, okay, Grandpa doesn't agree that there's anything wrong, and he thinks that we are trying to control his money. Yeah, and you can have different types of documents on when they become active. You can have ones that are springing, that they only come active with a, an opinion. You can have other documents that can have different types of triggering events. You know, and it's going to be about what is the appropriate ones in the circumstances. But, but if it's a doctor's opinion, then then if you've got a, an individual that doesn't agree that there's anything wrong and feels that you're trying to control his money, they're going to avoid going to the doctor. And that can be the case, and that's why you can also have other triggering events as mm -hmm. well, too. Some documents you can have that are general in the sense that they're actually legally effective, but they're being held under letters of direction. And that is a direction from the client to the lawyer saying, Okay, if I start struggling, these are the types of scenarios when this can be released. One of them, you know, the ideal situation is that someone recognizes they're going through this difficult time. But when someone is going through it, everyone reacts differently. Some people recognize and say, hey, I need help. Other people, it becomes very frustrating and even some level of embarrassment involved in it. And it's hard for them to recognize that they need the help or don't want to admit that they need the help. And in those situations, those are the ones that are going to avoid going to the doctors. Mm -hmm. And in those situations, you need to have other ways. And when you're going through making this decision, it's being done at a time when someone's of sound mind. So you can talk to someone saying, you know, look, and if you're going through this situation, you might not be able to recognize when the right time is. So we need to talk about other ways it can be released. And what are some of the other triggering events? And what is appropriate might depend on who the people being named are. Right? If it's close family friends or close family members, sorry, you might have some things that are a little more easier to release. Like it might be on a demand of those family members along with satisfactory evidence as to why the person isn't giving the instructions. Usually that's meant to more cover emergency situations, but it can perhaps be a little more flexible. But, you know, in situations where it's a little more removed, like if it's your neighbor you've known for 20 years that you're appointing, you might want to have some stricter grounds on which it can be released. So there's no one-size-fits-all as far as saying this is always the way it should be when the documents are going to be released. It's going to depend on someone's particular circumstances. Because and, no and a trust. You'd have to have a really uh, a trust relationship with somebody in order to say in advance, I'm going to release control of my finances to you in these circumstances, I would think. And, and are they revocable? So I get to the point where the trusted person that I, I thought uh, I trusted at the time says to me, I'm going to take control of your finances. And in my uh, reduced capacity, I guess, but maybe some capacity, I say, no, you're taking my money and uh, I, I don't want you to, to have that anymore. And you know what you're saying? It can happen because the thing about when people are going through degenerative diseases is that for a lot of people, the loss of capacity isn't a light switch. It's not one day they have capacity and the next day they don't. There's going to be good days and bad days, good times a day and bad times a day. And sometimes when people are going through this and they have someone who is well-intentioned and is trying to help them, they start getting perhaps a little concerned and feeling like too much power is being taken away from them and they want it to stop. 
And if they've got enough capacity at that time, a key moment, they can revoke those documents. Yeah. And that's, I've seen that happen. And that's that's some of the situations I've seen as well. So we read about in the news now, they're talking about a process for involuntary commitment. Uh, in that meeting, I had the privilege of sitting, sitting in with you. Uh, you talked about the lack of, there's no way to force somebody into, or it's very difficult to force somebody into treatment or force somebody into, uh, into getting, uh, having a committee appointed really right now. Is there? Yeah, there's, there's certainly some gaps there, and that's particularly depending on the circumstances and what someone's going through and why they're potentially looking at needing help, is if it's a, a loss of capacity, some, of them, some legislation like the Patients Property Act is meant and designed to cover those circumstances. But when you've got other mental acumen issues, you know, like a mental health concern, like an addiction concern, you know, a lot of the legislation currently is not designed to cover those circumstances. So as far as the options and different things you can look at under the Mental Health Act, as an example, you know, they're designed for not necessarily to have that same type of control where you can help someone and start making decisions for them. You know, you start looking at things like, you know, involuntary commitment into a mental health facility. You know, those types of situations are meant really just to kind of get some of the immediate treatment, but they're meant to be temporary in nature, right? So when we're looking at when someone needs help, we're not talking about needing Band-Aid solutions here. We're talking about someone needing a plan set in place to actually help them in the long term. Yeah, it's not, it just seems like we're failing people right now. If we can't force people who are in the throes of an addiction to uh, seek some treatment, aren't we killing them in, no. in a sense? That's a bit harsh, I think, to say, Clay, in all honesty. You know, I think I'm just going to say that with society and some of the changes that we're seeing, you know, the law changes with our society. And I think we're going to be seeing some of those changes yeah. because we are seeing some of these social issues becoming more prevalent. And our laws change with time. Look at medical assistance in dying. Yeah. For decades, that was a criminal offense. Our society changed in our view of that. And that changed with the Carter decision and being codified in the criminal code to actually allow it. So I'm going to say that, yeah, I get your point in saying that, yes, currently there is issues and gaps. But that's what the law is, is that it changes to what our society needs. And, you know, that's what we're looking at is what are those appropriate changes? To be honest with you, I don't know. I can't, you know, gaze into that crystal ball. But I do trust that there will be changes to try to help these types of situations. Echoing what Clay said, and like I, I hear where you're coming from when you feel like, aren't we not doing enough? Like we're letting these individuals, like we're watching them pass. Um, if you have somebody that's addicted, their family knows they're addicted, they're overdosing, for example, and they're not able to get them into any type of rehabilitation because like you're saying, you can't force anybody in. They're not going to force them to stay. What can be done? So you said the court process is hard. What can you, like, what is hard about going through a court process to try to get something to happen? Well, there's kind of two points to that. The first is when we're talking about something like addiction, you know, that if it's going to be something that's qualified as a mental health concern or mental health issue, then there might be provisions under the Mental Health Act where someone might be able to be involuntarily committed. And, but the thing is about that is it's meant to only really be temporary in nature. Yeah. It's meant to be, you know, someone could potentially be picked up by the RCMP. You can actually apply in provincial court to try to get an order to have someone picked up and they can be taken to a mental health facility then. 
Now, they'll be assessed there then to see whether or not they qualify under the provisions under the Mental Health Act. Yeah. But it's meant to be temporary. You know, it can be extended beyond 30 days. Did you know what the qualifications are? Is it harming yourself or, or, or somebody yeah. else? Or? There is actually set qualifications set out in the Mental Health Act. And yeah. one of the elements, there is a harm element. One is making sure that it actually does qualify as having a mental health issue yeah. as an item under the, the requirements. And the harm element can be... It can apply both to harming oneself as well as harming others. Yeah. Now, when harming oneself, you know, using the fentanyl as an example, that one is one where it's becoming a little more difficult to draw where that line is because harming oneself was, you know, my understanding was, was more tended to look at the view of suicide concerns, right? Whereas now with the prevalence of fentanyl in illicit drugs, you know, there is a concern about potentially harming oneself with the use of those. Now, the concern I said, though, is that's really more temper in nature. When we start looking at more permanent situations and getting appointments, that's really when we start talking about the court application process. And that was, I think you had asked Tanvir about kind of what that process actually is. I think earlier I said that it was a difficult process. And I just want to maybe explain a little bit what I meant by that. Mm -hmm. Before you even get going on the process, that's when you need to get the two assessments done. So you need to get two medical assessments done of someone. And, you know, okay, right now, doctor shortage is difficult. Even if someone does have a family doctor, getting a referral for doing that second assessment is very difficult. And it takes months in the best case scenario if they do want it to happen and recognize Mm -hmm. they might need help but don't have enough capacity to do a power of attorney or representation agreement. It still takes months right now. It's difficult. And then... What happens is they do an assessment, and then each of those doctors are going to have to do an affidavit. So sworn statement. So once again, time's going to elapse getting the doctor actually, you know, to do one of these affidavits. Two of them. Uh, you know, I do think there seems to be a gap in the legislation. I hope that the powers that be are working on it. I mean, obviously, we don't want to go back. You heard, you know, stories about the old days about the English royals committing their black sheep, you know, and we don't want to do that. And we don't want grandpa not to be able to spend the money that he spent his whole life. But boy, I it sure I sure find it heartbreaking when I think we can't do anything about the, the drug addiction and the, the mental health uh, or, or make it make it hard so until next time thank you colin for thanks colin thank you so much fhmp lawyers are rooted in community and ready to help send your business law questions to podcast at fhplawyers.com